Father, we do thank and praise you as we've seen week on week in Kings that you are a God who speaks. You speak even to a people whose ears are shut to you. We pray that you would soften our heart. We pray that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder, do you ever have the feeling, that kind of letdown feeling, when sometimes you realise that you have pinned too many of your hopes or, or all of your hopes on a particular thing and it doesn't happen? Do you know that you you find that perhaps your heart has been set on something and suddenly you realize it's not going to happen and and you feel that letdown. I've got a few examples, but picture this one with me. It's a close family member who who isn't a believer in Jesus, doesn't follow Christ. Perhaps you've been praying for them for years and years and they agree to come to a church event and, and it turns out it's a really good one. It's a posh meal. The, the food is posh and good and not offensive. The, there's an excellent after-dinner speaker who is, who is funny and engaging and insightful and charming and who has the room in the palm of their hands and, and speaks clearly of Christ, doesn't pull back from the hard stuff, but is winsome and clear. And then you chat a family member after the talk. They didn't really get it. They didn't really engage with the content of the talk. They were, they were more thinking about, well, the delivery, well, how was it said rather than what was said? You'd been hoping and praying and longing. This, this was the moment. This was it. And then no, nothing. And that feeling of, that feeling of disappointment, despondency. I think that's a little bit like what we have in this chapter with Elijah. As he sat there under the broom brush in in verse 4, he sat down and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he says. Perhaps you know something of that. The, The situation, the setting might be different, but the heartache, the thing that hasn't worked out as you had hoped for, the people in your life who, who just don't get it yet. Who, who won't change, who, who can't change. Do you remember as we're looking at 1 and 2 Kings, or just this little bit at the end of 1 and start of 2, the two books themselves cover about 400 years, but these verses cover about 30 years. It's a third of the text on 30 years. And we said, why does the writer slow down? Why does he focus in on these times? What's he trying to say to us? What are we meant to remember and to focus in on? And we said, well, he wants us to consider the the depths to which the people of God will go. The depths of Ahab, their king. The people's unfaithfulness. They're, They're in the land, but as Emily was teaching the kids, they've turned their backs on the God of life. They've run after other gods that promised life and joy and salvation and happiness and there's, a, there's been a three-year drought brought on by the Lord, but the people are still running after Baal and Asherah. So not just the depths, though, to which the people of God will fall, but the kindness of God. 
We've seen his grace. We've seen how he pursues a wayward people. And he keeps going after them. The way that he speaks even when hearts hearts are hard. When people turn their backs on him. And as Emily was explaining to the children, last time on Mount Carmel, well, it looked like we had made significant progress. Do you remember the plan? You had the two bulls, the two altars, 450 of Baal's prophets versus one Elijah. And team Baal spent most of the day passionately, fervently, wholeheartedly pleading with Baal to send fire and to burn up the sacrifice, a man-centered religion that seeks to manipulate and influence and, and work God to do what they want him to do. And then Elijah on his own. Simple prayer. Praying for God's glory. Praying that, that this miracle would show the people again who God is and that they can trust him. And that their hearts would turn to him. And so we finished it last time, verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It looks like national repentance. Baal's false prophets shown to be what they are and removed. And Ahab even seems to turn back to the Lord. The, the king who has been leading the people away from the Lord turns back to him. It's, it's revival. It's extraordinary. And the section even ends with the king following the word of God back home again. Is this, is this the next chapter? Is this the new story? Surely we've reached the depths of disobedience. And here is the time when we look up again. The line starts rising. But we get to chapter 19 and we realize it's not the case. The first thing we see in chapter 19, if you're a note taker, then first point, Elijah's dark despondency. You see, it becomes clear that it was a false hope. And that we are no way out of the woods yet. Because how does Jezebel react to the, the good news from Ahab. He gets back home again. And Jezebel listens to her husband Ahab. Verse 1, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. The Lord, he is God. No. No, she says, she says, you killed my prophets, I will kill you. By tomorrow, I will kill you. Maybe Elijah's hope had been pinned on converting the elite, the royal couple leading the people away from the Lord. And it's not happened in Ahab. He just seems to listen to his wife again. He doesn't stand up against her. Elijah's had the stuffing completely knocked out of him, and so he runs. Now, why does Elijah run? It's interesting, this passage is often taught for different reasons, and I'm not convinced now that people are always right or clear on, on why Elijah is running. 
Because the text, you see it in verse 3, seems pretty clear there. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. But do you see, after afraid, there's a little A and there's a footnote. So there's an alternative one that Elijah saw and ran for his life. And I think there are pretty strong arguments for that version. I think textually it works. I think translation terms it works. I think in the context it works as well. Because what do we know of Elijah so far? We know Elijah is pretty able to lie low in Kerith Ravine. We know he's able to lie low in Zarephath for at least three years. We know he's able to confront Ahab and 450 prophets and all the people who at any moment could have captured him. So is he afraid? It doesn't make a huge difference, but but I wonder if he's not so much terrified of Jezebel, but rather he runs because if the Lord's prophet is killed, then the people will see or will think that Baal is boss. So I'm not sure that he's running primarily out of fear for Jezebel. Often people say that, but I think we can paint Elijah in a slightly better light. People also say, well, he he gets terrified and he just legs it. He doesn't really think about it. He just scarpers. He's got no real plan. He's got no real idea of where he's going. And Now, it's true, as you read through the chapter, there is this feeling of despondency and hopelessness and isolation. You can sense that in Elijah. It's definitely there. So verse 4, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Verse 10. Do you see how I've been zealous for the Lord God Almighty? The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And he says it again in verse 14. He repeats verse 10 again. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. But do you see why he's down? I think it's striking. Why is Elijah down? I think he's saying, verse 4, I, I can't get the people to trust you. I'm no better than my ancestors. God, I'm not sure the plan is working. I thought karma was it. I thought that would do. That, that was what I was hoping for. There we saw the fireworks. And we saw things change. And I thought it was it, but, but, but nothing's changed. So I'm, I'm handing in my resignation letter as a prophet. I can't do it. I'm just like my ancestors who couldn't get their people to follow you either. So I think that is why Elijah is despondent. Because he recognizes he can't change people's hearts. I have to say, I find these verses a challenge initially because because of the way in which Elijah cares for his people. He is down because of the spiritual state of his people. That is why he is despondent. It's a challenge, isn't it? I don't know if you ever get despondent or down or low. I'm not talking about depression here, but if you're you're anything like me, I suspect it's mostly because you don't get what you want. My, My grumps, you can ask my family, and mostly because of my sin. But here, Elijah is ready to die because of the hardness of his people's hearts. Because he cares about them, because he cares about the glory of the Lord's. He cares about his people following the Lord's. 
And he's realized he can't do it. So he is despondent and isolated and hopeless, but but I'm not sure it's a case of simply randomly legging it. I, I don't think that's what's going on. I, I think in, in the Lord's sovereignty, it is all part of his patient plan. So it is striking, and this is right, that Elijah does run without hearing from the Lord. He doesn't hear the word of the Lord, which I think is the first time in the narrative that we see that. But how does the Lord respond? It's interesting, he is active throughout. He, he, he kindly, gently provides what Elijah needs. So let me read to you again from verse 5. Then Elijah lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled for 40 days and 40 nights. He, he is exhausted. There is no doubt about that. The Lord provides food and water and rest for him. And it's a simple point on the way past. But we're physical beings. And we need to rest and to eat properly. And some of us need to hear that. It's worth just saying it. So perhaps it's stop faffing. Get a week of early nights. Maybe that would do you good. Maybe it's just making sure that you eat food properly and don't skip meals. But it's more than that. Why? Why is Elijah running? Where is he going? What is this journey, verse 7, that he's undertaking, that he needs to be strengthened for? Because the angel of the Lord seems to already know where he's going. Well, he goes initially, verse 3, to Beersheba. He leaves his servant there. That's about a hundred miles south. That would make a perfectly good place for him to lie low if he was just planning to hide. But then he carries on and he goes another couple of hundred miles further again to Horeb. And another name for Horeb? Sinai. He's going to the mountain of the Lord's. He is going to the place that the law was given to Moses, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Do you remember God rescues his people from Egypt through Moses, takes them to Sinai, and there you get the law from the Lord. He brings the two stone tablets down the mountain, and there are covenants made. And so this journey that Elijah is doing is about the covenant. And the writer, I think, wants us to join the dots. Have a look at some of the dots, because when you see them, it makes a whole lot more sense. So have a look, verse 4, where does Elijah go? He goes into the wilderness. That's a loaded word. Verse 8, how long does he travel for? 40 days, 40 nights. That's loaded. Where does he go? Verse 8, he arrives at Horeb, at Sinai. Or twice when he speaks to the Lord, verse 10 and verse 14, he says, the Israelites have rejected your covenant. And so you see, when God says to him in verse 9 and verse 13, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
I don't think it's the question of the exasperated parent who has finally found the stroppy child hiding in the garden sheds. It's not, what are you doing here, Elijah? I think that's how I used to read it. I think it's the question of the loving parents. The loving parent wanting to tease out of their child what he really wants. And the Hebrew emphasizes this, but it's, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? Why are you at Horeb? What do you want from me at the mountain of the Lord's? Do you see which changes the emphasis of the passage? It's not so much on Elijah just scarpering. It's the Lord working his fear, perhaps, his despondency into his plans and purposes for good reasons. Because you see, if that's the case, if he's at Horeb and the Lord is saying, what are you doing here? Then we need to ask the question, what did Moses do when he was there? And the answer is lots. But I think there are two things in particular that we need to latch onto to try and understand what is happening with Elijah. So remember Moses. He gave the people the law, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. He was back up the mountain. He's away for 40 days and 40 nights. And when he comes back, Exodus 32, what are the people doing? Well, it's golden calf time. The people have already turned their hearts away to worship not the God who made them, but the God they have made. Do you see what happens then? Moses smashes the tablets, heads back up the mountain. And I'm going to read to us now from that bit where he's gone back up the mountain, Exodus 33 and 34. So Exodus 20, the law is given. 32, the golden calf, smashes the tablets with the law on and goes back up the mountain. Let me read to us. Some bits and bobs from Exodus 33 and 34. Then Moses said to the Lord, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favour in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Two things for Moses. One is that there is a fresh revelation of God. The Lord passes by Moses whilst in the cleft of a rock and reveals his glory through speaking. You see that? Isn't that striking? His glory is seen primarily in his goodness and his character. In the kind of God that he is. He is a God of love and a God of justice. 
And so Moses is given this fresh revelation from God as he grasps something of his glory seen in who our God is. But I think it's more than that. The second bit is that there is something covenantal going on at Sinai because because of his character, God affirms to Moses his commitment to the covenant despite the people's hearts. So you get to chapter 32 and you get to the golden calf and we're thinking, well, do do you just rub it all out and start again? But the Lord says, no. No, we won't do that. And so as Moses ascends Sinai and is given a fresh revelation from God and prays for the Lord to forgive his wayward people, so I think Elijah's doing something very similar. Do you get it? Moses confirms the covenant. Elijah reestablishes the covenant. In verse 14, as Elijah tells the Lord what he already knows about his people, it's not that he's just having a wine. It's what theologians call a a covenant accusation. Suddenly we're in a court of law. And Elijah is saying, look at them, Lord. What is the plan? It is not working. What can we do about these messy people with their wayward hearts? What is your plan to put things right again? And the answer to that plan, I think, is in 11 to 13. Verse 11 to 13. Basically, Elijah is asking, how, Lord, do you work? And so verse 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. It's a really famous episode. But I I take it at heart the Lord is saying, he's at work in the little things. Do you know, I think it's not a passage primarily about how to have a quiet time. Right through the series, right through this bit of Kings, the Lord has simply been speaking to Elijah. He doesn't need to be taught how to have a quiet time with the Lord. And though these things might be useful, it's not a passage about being silent and going on retreat. It's a passage that says the Lord is at work through words and through things that are not showy. Elijah hears the voice of the Lord. He covers his face because he can't see the Lord's face. And he goes out to listen. And he's just seen the showy last week on Mount Carmel. It was spectacular and amazing and powerful and there were flashing lights. It was extraordinary. Miracles. But Elijah's just seen nothing's really changed. Nothing seems to have changed in the people. Ours is a God who uses the ordinary, the little things, to bring about his purposes. Elijah, don't worry if the dramatic hasn't worked. Verse 15 to 18, apply that for us. They show you how the Lord will work. It's it's through politics, through kings. 
It's through the next generation of prophets who will succeed you. So he recruits Elisha, end of the chapter. God says, I'm in charge. I'm going to preserve a people for myself. It's, it's going to be 7,000, which, which may not actually be 7,000. It may be seven perfect number times by a thousand big number. So you get the perfect big number. But he will preserve a people for himself. God is in charge. One pastor I heard of, um, I think very helpfully, used to say this. He said, we don't so much need revival as we need reformation in the church. Because you see, if you look back at church history, you will see that revivals are amazing. And when God pours out his spirit on his church, it is good. Of course it is good. But actually, if you, if you do the maths and you count up the numbers... It's the everyday faithful work of Christians that really matters. It's the daily different living. It's being reformed by the word of God. It's the stepping out of comfort zones. It's speaking to friends and neighbours and colleagues of Christ. It's, it's stretching ourselves and planting churches. So do you see what? What 1 Kings 19 is about, a passage about, it's for despondent people like Elijah who think the Lord is not in control, who think it's all over and the Lord says, I'm in control. It's all good. I am the God of the covenant who faithfully looks after my people. I'm working through the little things, the small things, the mundane things, the everyday things and I'm a God who speaks. Because you see, back in Exodus, when it was Moses, he thought it was all over, but it it wasn't. God was at work. And the people had walked out on him and worshipped golden calves, but God doesn't walk out on them. He's a God of covenant who sticks by his people. And here, under King Ahab, when Elijah thinks it's all over, because the people have walked out on him and bowed the knee to Baal and Asherah, God doesn't walk out on them. He's a God of covenant. He sticks by his people. And you can imagine, you fast forward a few years, and again his people walk out on him, and he sends them into exile. They're in Babylon, they're in Assyria, they're in Persia. Is the plan ruined? Has God given up on his people? No. No, no, he's the God of covenant. He sticks by his people. And a few years further on, they're back in the land again. It's... It's widespread apostasy, people turning their backs on the Lord. Is the plan ruined? Has God given up? No, he's the God of covenant who sticks by his people. And so there's a man on the banks of the Jordan called John. He looks, sounds quite like Elijah. He is preaching and baptizing. He is turning the hearts of the people back to the Lord. A few more years, we're on another mountain. Two men openly standing and talking to the glorious, transformed Lord Jesus. Two men who had both met with the Lord on Horeb. Do you remember? Moses and Elijah. Both men had seen something of the Lord's glory. They had seen something of his character, but they hadn't seen his face until now. Both men who served Sinful people, and so they had pleaded with the Lord to be kind and to remember his covenant. 
And on the Mount of Transfiguration, they look into the face of the one who is the answer to the hearts of his wayward people. He's the God of covenants who sticks by his people. And then fast forward again. And we're on Golgotha with Jesus. Dealing with his people's wayward hearts. The one who will fulfill the covenant finally. Did you see on Horeb, Moses makes the covenant. On Horeb, Elijah reaffirms the covenant. On Golgotha, Jesus fulfills the covenant once and forever. So 1 Kings 19 is a is a passage for despondent people. People like you, people like me. And it calls us again to look to the God who says, I'm in control and I'm in charge and you can trust me and you can keep going. I know your heart is pr- prone to wander. I know what you're like. I know that you are prone to doubt. I know that you are prone to despondency. And I know that you look around the broken world and you see that the tide is turning and it is harder and harder to be a Christian and to, to make a stand for Jesus. And I, and I know that your friends and your family's hearts are hard, but don't be despondent. Because remember the kind of God I am. I'm the kind of God who pursues people when they turn from me. And I'm the kind of God who works in unlikely ways. I'm working in the little things, in the gentle whispers. I work in words. I work behind the scenes in the mundane, normal, everyday life on on Monday afternoons and Wednesday mornings. And I am working out my plan. And remember my son who died on a cross for you to fulfill my covenant with you to give you new hearts that can follow me. So my child, don't be despondent. Don't give up. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you that you know us. Thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves. You know the wandering nature of our hearts. You know the despondency that many of us can feel. And so we thank you that you are a God who is faithful. Thank you that you are a God who keeps his covenant. Thank you that you are a God even who fulfills his covenant for us because of our sin. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that particularly in him and on the cross we see something extraordinary in terms of your glory. We see that you are the God who loves in a costly way. We see that you are compassionate and gracious that you are slow to anger, abounding in love. Thank you that you maintain love to thousands and you forgive wickedness.
Thank you that as he fulfills that covenant for us, so you transform our hearts. We pray that you would be at work in us. We pray that increasingly we would follow and love and serve you and that we would go to you for life and not to the other so-called gods of this world with their empty promises. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust that you are in control and that you are in charge. Help us please to keep going. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.